Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John. We are in chapter 20, reading verses 1 through 18. And again, I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. And so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And herein ends the reading of God's Word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. It is not often you should hear that as never that I choose as the text for the Lord's Day any of the Gospel accounts relating the resurrection of Jesus Christ on any Lord's Day other than on Easter Sunday. It is also rare for me to preach the very same text twice in the same year, unless perhaps it is a popular text requested for a specific occasion, such as a funeral. But this Lord's Day, I have chosen the resurrection text from the Gospel of John, even though I preached on this text this past Easter, But I am doing so once again because I want us to consider it in the context of our orderly walk through the gospel according to John. 
And I would like for us to think of John's account of the resurrection, as well as the other episodes that he relates in the aftermath, as the fitting conclusion to John's major purpose in writing his gospel. We began this journey a little over a year ago now. I wonder if you recall what precipitated the decision to walk through John's Gospel. Do you remember? What set things in motion was the State of Theology survey that Ligonier Ministries commissioned LifeWay Research to conduct for them. And it was due to their finding that one in three self-identified evangelical Christians believed that Jesus was a great teacher but nothing more, and that two out of three of them held the heretical view that Jesus was the first and greatest thing that God created. Such results should set off alarm bells in the hallways of every Bible-believing church in America, For such ignorance can only be staved off by delving deeply into the Scriptures day by day and week after week. The church in America does not need, from their pulpits, seven ways to balance your life between work and play. The congregations need to know that Jesus is the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, and that one day every employer and every coach will bow their knee before Him. The church does not need from their pulpits twelve secrets for a happy marriage. They need to know that one day King Jesus will return for His bride, the church, to take her to the heavenly home He is preparing for her, and that if you are not a part of that company of believers, it won't matter how happy or unhappy your earthly marriage or marriages have been. And as we said a year ago, the Gospel of John is ideal for addressing so many of the issues raised in that survey. For John leaves no doubt as to Jesus' identity, his work of salvation, the Gospel of grace, as well as John's purpose for writing, which is to provide his readers and hearers with all the evidence they need to conclude that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in Him, they might be saved. Now, part of that evidence is what we have before us today. Following the arrest, the trials, the crucifixion of Jesus, we learn that Joseph of Arimathea asks Pontius Pilate for the body of Jesus in order that he might bury him properly before sundown and the start of the Sabbath. He is assisted by Nicodemus, who has brought the necessary spices, and together they oversee Jesus' burial in a garden tomb not far from Calvary's hill. Now John has already removed any doubt that Jesus was truly dead when he explained that it was unnecessary for the Roman guard to break Jesus' legs in order to hasten his death because they could see that Jesus was already deceased. And to confirm that, the guard lances Jesus' side and what poured from that wound was a bloody, watery mixture which medical experts would argue was 
either was evidence that either Jesus heart was pierced or else the lining between his chest and his lungs was ruptured, both of which would indicate that Jesus was truly dead, but also that he was truly human in answer to the docetic heretics that were already around in John's day. Well, what John is giving evidence to now is that Jesus was also truly divine. John tells us that on the first day of the week, this marvelous thing occurred. D.A. Carson makes the point that all four Gospels refer to the day of the Lord's resurrection as occurring on the first day of the week. They could have used the reference that Jesus always made, which Paul made in the Corinthian letter we read a moment ago when he declared that he would rise on the third day. But the gospel writers do not. And the reason for that may be that they recognized in this event a new creation. The first step that God was taking to make all things new. So just like it was on the first day of the week, or the first day of the first week when God began His creation of the heavens and the earth by creating light and overwhelming the pre-creation darkness, So it is the first day of the week when God breaks the power of spiritual darkness by establishing a light that will forever shine. John indicates that it was still dark when Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and his characterization of the lighting conditions may be a continuation of his use of light and dark symbolism that we've seen throughout his gospel, but it may also support the notion that he's drawing a comparison between the first creation and now the new. Mary Magdalene is named in each of the other gospel accounts of the resurrection along with the names of other women, but John chooses to name her alone in his account, although Mary gives indication in verse 2 here that she was not alone. And the question as to why John does not name all the others is impossible to answer other than Mary may have been the first one to reach them with the news that the tomb had been disturbed, but certainly because she was the first one to actually see the risen Lord. The first news that she reports is they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary's initial conclusion is that there has been a grave robbery of some kind. We do not know whom she suspected, perhaps religious or political authorities, perhaps the owners of the tomb, she doesn't say. But it is safe to say that the notion of resurrection is not what she was contemplating. And the first clue that she and the other women had that something was amiss is when they noticed that the stone had not simply been rolled away, but that it had been displaced. It had been taken away from the tomb. In other words, the stone was probably lying on its side somewhere near the entrance. Now this was not so Jesus might emerge from the tomb, but rather so that the women and others might be able to gain access to the tomb themselves and see that he was missing. 
we assume that this is what occurs because of Mary Magdalene's report to Peter and John. The women looked in, were able to see that the body of Jesus was no longer lying where Joseph and Nicodemus had positioned it late Friday afternoon. And her report uh, made to John and Peter now demands investigation. As traumatized as the disciples must have been over the swift change in circumstances between Sunday and Friday, and as cautious as they must have been over the possibility that they too might be arrested and tried for being subversives, they leave the safe confines of the upper room, we assume, and race to the garden tomb to see for themselves what has been reported to them. John relates that he and Peter were running to the tomb and that he was the most fleet of foot, but that he was also the most cautious. He does not enter the tomb for reasons that are not entirely clear. Peter, on the other hand, slower perhaps because of his age, he's not hesitant at all about entering the tomb and looking for explanations as to what may have taken place. And upon entering, they discover that the tomb is not entirely empty. The grave clothes that had adorned Jesus' body are now lying in the place where he was, in roughly the same shape as you would expect them to be had the body that they were wrapped around simply vanished from within them. The special cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, the sodarian, was also lying there, but in its own place, apart from the other linen strips. Now the fact that these burial cloths were present was an argument against any kind of grave robbery. What kind of grave robber would take the time to leave all the grave linens as well as nearly 75 pounds of valuable spices behind? If you were up to no good, would you not be inclined to rush in and rush out and make your getaway? Even if the perpetrators were the religious authorities, let's say, and they were incensed because Pilate had allowed Joseph and Nicodemus to bury Jesus properly. They wanted Jesus to be buried in a common unmarked grave. They would not have taken the time to peel away the linen cloths and fold up the sudarian before carrying Jesus out. They would have made short work of it. And as John himself processes these things, standing in this tomb, the Spirit of God reveals to him that the only answer that makes any sense is that Jesus has been raised from the dead, just as he said. Unlike Lazarus, who emerged from the tomb still bound by his grave clothes to the extent that he needed help being unbound, Jesus has simply passed through these cloths and made his way out into the world. In contrast to Thomas, who will later demand that he see the risen Christ before he will believe, John indicates that it was because he did not see Christ here that he came to believe. But John also bears witness to the fact that his understanding, that Peter's understanding, that the understanding of all the disciples of Scripture at this point was elemental. They did not have a solid understanding of what the law and the prophets and the Psalms 
said that would lead to an understanding of how or why the resurrection of the Messiah was destined to be. That would require divine intervention, which the Gospel writer Luke refers to in his Gospel just prior to Jesus' ascension when he says that then he, meaning Jesus, opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Well, John tells us that he and Peter went to their homes, or more clearly, they went back to where they had been. And as they leave center stage, Mary Magdalene returns. She had found the disciples dutifully reported the initial problem, but after Peter and John raced off, we're not sure where she went or what she did, but she may have been winded from her own run, And she does not go to her home. Rather, she's still grieving over whatever has become of Jesus. She's distraught that anyone would disturb a grave, particularly the grave of one who had so blessed her life. We learn from Luke's Gospel that Mary Magdalene had once been plagued with seven evil spirits from which she had been delivered through the ministry of Jesus, and that kind of spiritual bondage was a life that she would not have wished on anyone. And so it hurts her to know that not only was Jesus treated horribly by the religious authorities resulting in his shameful suffering and death, but now they have possibly added insult to injury by disturbing his final resting place. And this troubles her greatly. And so she returns to the scene of the crime. She comes back to the tomb in search of answers to be near the place where Jesus last lay to see if maybe she can figure out what has happened. And as she stands outside the tomb weeping, she looks once more towards the interior of the tomb, perhaps doubting that what she had seen earlier was even real. But what she sees this time are not the grave clothes of her Lord, but rather two angelic figures who have quietly arrived bearing the good news of the resurrection. And they have a question for her. Woman, why are you weeping? Now bear in mind that this question is not intended for them to gather information. This is a question designed to gently chide Mary and to reorient her thinking. In the face of the resurrection from the dead, tears of sorrow are an inappropriate response. She should be experiencing joy. But her answer tells us that her mind is still stuck on a false narrative. She continues to believe that the tomb of Jesus has been robbed because she states once again, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And it is at this point that her attention is drawn away from the two angels towards another person who is nearby. It is Jesus, although she does not recognize him. In the same way that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus are prevented from recognizing Jesus on their long walk, so Mary's eyes are kept from immediately recognizing her Lord. And he repeats the question posed by the angel's woman, Why are you weeping? And then he asks, Whom are you seeking? Now we might wonder, why do the angels 
as well as Jesus, not show up when Peter and John were wandering around the tomb looking for answers? Why is the Lord's first appearance to Mary Magdalene? Well, it would be impossible for us to know with any certainty what the Lord's rationale was for appearing to Mary, first of all. But isn't it interesting that he does so? He could have popped in and awakened Pontius Pilate from a deep sleep and said, Hey, let's finish that discussion we started about kings and kingdoms, if you don't mind. He could have appeared to Caiaphas or Herod and said, You know what? I got a bone to pick with you. He could have appeared to the disciples and said, Surprise, told you. But he doesn't. His first appearance is to Mary Magdalene. A woman whom Jesus delivered from deep spiritual darkness and she is given the privilege of being the first evangelist to bear the good news. I have seen the Lord. Many have called attention to the fact that Jesus' treatment of women, children as well, throughout his ministry was counter-cultural. He esteemed them in ways that were unprecedented and his treatment of them was challenging to the men that surrounded him. And his first appearance to Mary is indicative of this very fact. The Gospel writer Luke indicates that the disciples who first heard the report of the women testifying to their encounter with the angels treated their message as an idle tale reflecting the diminished value that their culture placed upon women. But here, John accurately reports that the first person to see and interact with the risen Christ was a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. And what we learn from John of this interaction is that upon her recognizing Jesus when he spoke her name, she ran to him and desperately held him all in an attempt, we suppose, to keep him from ever disappearing again. And his response to her is a little perplexing. It has caused a number of explanations to arise. But the best understanding, I believe, is that Jesus is saying to her, you can stop clinging to me. I'm not ascending to the Father right this second. <laughs> but now, go. To my disciples and tell them that the process of my ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God, it has begun. We need to remember Jesus' words to his disciples on Thursday evening at dinner when he said to them, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. So what Jesus announced or what Jesus wants Mary to announce to the disciples is that he has risen just as he said, but he isn't immediately departing, but the process of his ascending to the Father is now underway. He won't be with them 24/7 as he was prior to his crucifixion, but he will be coming to them. You remember that he said to them, Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. That's the stage that they are all in over the next 40 days. But then will come the moment 
when he will ascend into heaven and they will no longer see him with their eyes, but they will have the advantage of his spirit dwelling within them. Now just a final word about Jesus' encounter with Mary. She does not perceive him with her eyes, but rather it is through her ears when Jesus speaks her name that she recognizes her Lord. And I would submit to you that it is primarily through the proclamation of the word of Christ that we come to know him. Paul declares in Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Jesus declares that he's the good shepherd, that the sheep of his pasture know his voice and they respond to him calling their name. The gospel writer John is setting forth all the necessary evidence for people to reach the conclusion that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that by his death and resurrection, God the Father has declared that a new day is dawning that will cast a light into the darkest shadows of the human heart, setting people free who respond by faith to the call of Christ. This moment of recognition that Mary experiences is a moment that is repeated again and again and again. For the Good Shepherd continues to call by name those who belong to Him. Now that may be you this morning. And if you have never come to Christ but are sensing today that all that John has recorded is true, then I encourage you to let go of all the hopeless things that you have held until now and cling to Jesus instead. Trust Him with your eternal future and rely upon Him alone, by faith alone, so that you might know with all certainty that He will never cast you out, but He will receive you as you sincerely repent and call upon His name. Let me invite you to pray with me for a moment this morning.